We're thinking this evening, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We're doing Nehemiah in our Bible study, um, in both Milford and Letterkenny, and then we've started preaching on it as well, just not taking every chapter, but dipping in and out of it. And I uh, hadn't planned to preach on this this evening, but the verse so struck me in the Bible study on Tuesday night that I thought, I want to go back uh, and to look at this. Um, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, Christianity is unique um, amongst the world religions. It's driven by joy. It starts with God's joy in God, in the Trinity, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoying each other. Paul writes to Timothy and he describes God as the ever-blessed God. Um, one uh, Bible translation describes it as the, the ever-happy God, the happy God. He, he's filled with joy in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And whenever he moves to create the universe, it brings him great joy, great pleasure. He looks at everything that he's made and he says, it's good. It's good. Creation brings him joy. Salvation brings God joy. The Messiah, we're told in Psalm 45, uh, more than all his friends and colleagues, more than any around him, is anointed with the oil of joy. This sets him apart. Uh, it's something that, that marks him out. He's filled with joy. In Hebrews 12, uh, our Savior, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. In John 15, Jesus speaks of his joy in his disciples as his disciples grasp what it is to obey his commands and to follow him and to live and remain and to abide in him. Jesus has joy in his disciples. And the Holy Spirit creates joy. Galatians 5, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Romans uh, fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 uh, says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, well, we've left out the Father, God the Father, filled with joy, Jesus paints it for us in that delightful parable of the prodigal son. You get a glimpse, the God the Son saying, let me tell you the joy that ripples through my Father's life and heart. Here he is. And as Christians, we're commanded to joy. Um, at, least, at least I didn't count them up. I just took a, a quick uh, scan down a list of verses and counted the commands at least 14 times in the New Testament. Uh, rejoice and be glad, Matthew 5, for your reward in heaven is great. Luke 10, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, command, that your names are recorded in heaven. Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. The famous ones in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, said Paul in prison. Rejoice always, says Paul to the Thessalonians. Um, Peter, he's at it too. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been distressed by various trials. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Commanded to rejoice. And I don't want us to think, oh, here, here's another command that we're clearly failing uh, to obey and uh, to beat ourselves up with it. God knows that the default mode of mankind is joy-robbing work and effort. And we just fall back into, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do for God to be happy with me. And in a sense, the commands to rejoice are a little bit like a command to a child to eat ice cream. You know, a child might be a bit hesitant, might be a bit worried about it, and the father knows, look, you'll enjoy this, eat it. God says, just rejoice. I want to think this evening, how uh, do we go about that? What does it mean? Uh, Spurgeon had a, a great quote on this. He said, there are some Christians who imagine that the sorrow of the Lord will be their strength. And that's not what Nehemiah says. He says, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Uh, and we're to be marked out. It's uh, the hallmark of the Christian that we, we are filled with joy. Nehemiah 8. It's the time of year for the Feast of Tabernacles. The people seem to have forgotten their religious calendar. And they've gathered together for some reason and they're expecting God's word to be read, and Ezra reads it, and as they read through it, they seem uh, to come to this section in Leviticus where the command for the Feast of Tabernacles is given. And they were to remember in that feast God's rescue, bringing them out of Egypt. And it was the favorite feast of the year, and everybody uh, gathered together, and they, they built these little booths out of branches, and they camped out in them, um, as a whole nation, it'd be a bit like one of our big summer conferences, and everybody's in tents and caravans all together, and the, the enjoyment is fantastic, the crack is mighty, the fellowship is wonderful, and everybody's together, and that's the sort of scene of Nehemiah 8, um, and, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were to remember the joy of being rescued, and the joy of the Lord that Nehemiah is speaking about, we might have a question, is it the joy that God has or is it the joy that God gives? Well, surely it's both because the joy that God has, he gives. He's a God who rescues his people and does mighty deeds for his people and expects us to be filled with joy as we look at what he's done. He does these things for us to, to bring us joy. We can ultimately have that fantastic joy of knowing him. And joy was to come by remembering God's salvation and God's character. They were to think over the exodus at this feast. They were to remember the, the plagues that had decimated the Egyptians' trust in their gods. They were to remember the, the coming out and the, the riches with which they left Egypt. 
They were to remember standing at the the brink of the Red Sea and the Egyptians bearing down on them and the pillar of uh, the curtain, as it were, of fire shielding them and then the sea opening up and them going through it and the Egyptians destroyed uh, by the waves as the waves crashed in them. They were to remember God's salvation. They were to remember God's providence, the water and the manna and the quail. They were to remember God's presence with them. This was what they were to do. And as they were to do that, they were to be filled with joy as they all were gathered together at this great festival, remembering and saying, do you remember he did this and and he did that and he, he did this too? And of course, now they're going to be adding to it, he's brought us back from exile. And look, he's helped us build the walls. And look, the enemies that were gathered against us, they've given up. Nehemiah says to them, the joy of the Lord, the the joy and all that God has done for you, that is to be your strength. And the word that's used for strength is a word that means stronghold or fortress or citadel or castle. We could translate The joy of the Lord will be your fortress, a place of strength, a place of security. This joy in God's power and God's work and God's character builds walls around our lives. It fortifies us against the discouragements of life, against Satan's attacks, This joy, as well as motivating us to obey, this joy defends us as we seek to live for Christ. It builds fortifications. Maybe you've been at some of the castles, Carrick Castle, and you go and stand in the keep, and the walls are five meters thick. The walls are the width of this room. The joy of the Lord is to be like a wall the thickness of this room around your life. Now, how do we build that wall? Well, how do we enjoy anything? Um, Remember your your, your mother saying to you uh, when you were wolfing your dinner down as quick as you could and you were just putting in and it was being swallowed in chunks and going down whole, said you take time to enjoy it. Um, Or actually maybe take time to taste it. Uh, but to take time to, to enjoy it. And that's what we need to do. We need to take time to enjoy it. Uh, Spurgeon, again, uh, said this, Very much of the depth of our piety will depend on our thoughtfulness. Many persons, after having received a doctrine, put it by on the shelf. Sirs, Of what account can this be to you to store your garners with wheat or your storerooms with wheat if you never grind the corn for bread or sow it in the furrows of your fields? To press the heavenly grapes by meditation and make the red wine flow forth in torrents is an exercise as strengthening as it is exhilarating. To stop and think. Squeeze the grapes of the doctrines of God and let the juice run out. And in Nehemiah 8, the people we read paid attention. They listened carefully. Things were made clear to them and they took it all and they drank it in 
And that's what we want to think about uh, this evening. Four areas to do that. And I was thinking as we were driving down, you know, we've got one for each finger. And uh, even in your own, your own devotions, your own quiet time, take, take these four things. We're to enjoy God as supreme. There's the first one. We're to enjoy God as sovereign. We're to enjoy God as saviour. And we're to enjoy God as supplier. And you could nearly just assign one to each finger and, and work your way. Here's you and here's God. And you think, right, here, here's, here I am. I want to enjoy God as supreme. We'll think through that. I want to enjoy God as sovereign. And you think through that. And you're praising him and you're thanking him. And you're praying these, these facts and these truths into your life. That's what we should be doing. So let me encourage you to, to take that and to, to think even of your four fingers and your thumb as you, as you, you work through them. Ah, take that as a, an aid to your memory. First of all, enjoy God as supreme. That's what the children of Israel saw at the Exodus. They saw the pantheon of the gods of Egypt decimated. Each of the plagues attacked not just one, but several of the gods of Egypt in many cases. They had several gods tied to the Nile. Uh, one of them was a god called Chum, uh, and he was the guardian of the Nile. So Moses says, God's going to turn it into a river of death. That's not just a, a party piece. The Egyptians would have been thinking, well, our gods can sort this out. Well, they can't. And then with the plague of frogs, and there was a, 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 god of, a god of resurrection who was shaped like a frog called Hect. And what happened? All these frogs, uh, and there's a stench of death everywhere, and there, there's no life. You know, and Hect, uh, for all her powers, has seemed to be nothing. Hail. Uh, the, the plague of hail will not go through all of them, but the plague of hail uh, lands on the crops and it obliterates the crops. Well, there's a God called Set, and his job was to protect the crops, but the God of the Israelites, he's not going to send hail. Let's see what, let's see what you can do. Gone. Darkness. Ra, the sun God, is shown to be known. It, it is spectacular. The children of Israel are living in sunlight, and over here, the Egyptians are living in pitch darkness. Sunlight, darkness. Just thinking about that makes you smile. Our God is supreme. And he's, he's supreme over all the idols. Psalm 15, 115. Uh, the, the gods of the nations are idols dumb. They have noses but they can't smell, ears but cannot hear. The, the songs of the people of God triumphed in the supremacy of their God. Isaiah 44 mocks the, the person who, who takes a piece of wood and makes an idol out of one part of it and bows down and worships it and uses the other half of the wood to cook their dinner on. Dagon, we were reading it in family worship this week, that just comical moment uh, when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon and Dagon falls over and lies face down in front of it as if he's worshipping. <laughs> Our God is supreme. And he's supreme, particularly in his character. And that's what I want you to think of. When you think of his supremacy, think of how supreme he is in his character. 
the infinite value of his worth. And we want to do two things with each of these points this evening. We want to ask, what will this safeguard us from? And what, how do we, where do we go to enjoy this? Where do we go to enjoy this? So what will this safeguard us from if we enjoy God as supreme? It'll safeguard us from idolatry. In particular, I don't think we're going to rush out and, and bow down to things quickly. But there's the sneaking devaluation of God that keeps our grip tightening on things and people and plans and our desires and our grip gets tighter on them. We don't want to let them go. These things become more and more to us. And and our grip on God loosens. Well, as we delight in the supremacy of God's character, This grip on things and people and plans will stay looser and our delight in God will tighten and our grip on him will be stronger. It helps us see things in their proper size. We're seeing how beautiful and mighty and majestic God is. We're we're meditating on it. We're contemplating it. It keeps things in their proportion, in their place and in their right sense of importance. And where do we see this? Where do we see the supremacy of God? We see it in his character in particular. Think over his, his supreme in wisdom. He's supreme in wisdom. He does all things well. Think of how he orchestrated all the events of the Exodus. Think of how he didn't take them by a route by which they, they would encounter all the forts along the coast and get really discouraged. Think how he even took them on a route that would allow them to see the destruction of their enemies. So that as they traveled to the promised land, they wouldn't always be looking over their shoulder for the, the thundering hoofbeats and the roar of chariot wheels of the Egyptians chasing them. He takes them on a route that leads them into an apparent dead end at the Red Sea. But he does it wisely. Because he wants them to see the destruction of their enemies. His supremacy of his wisdom. The Puritans had an illustration, I think it's Stephen Charnock, uh, one of the Puritans, he talks about the gardener spreading dung. And the stench of it's awful. I remember mum getting, I think it was horse manure and spreading it on a bed uh, on the side of our, our, our house. Um, and I thought I was a bit embarrassed about it as a child, you know, people walking past going, what is that? Um, and uh, then the roses grew. Ha ha, the wise gardener. And our Father in heaven is a wise gardener. Supreme in wisdom, supreme in goodness. We sung already of his goodness in Psalm Uh, 86, supreme in love. Stop and think about the lengths that he has gone to to show his love to us and enjoy it that you have been loved. From before time began, there wasn't a beginning to his love. He just loves you. That you have been loved by God to the extent that he would give his son for you. 
and that his son would willingly die for you and that the Holy Spirit would delight to come and dwell in you out of their triune love for you. Supreme in love, supreme in value. We, if we've got God, what else do we need? We've got everything, the maker of everything. I need to, to think on this, to enjoy it. We have got God. Somebody said, oh, I've got the new iPhone 6. So, I've got a holiday here. So, we've got God. We, I've told you before, I think it's J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, talks about the scholar who was passed over repeatedly um, and ignored because of his faith and didn't get a professorship, didn't get international recognition that he should have got. And they asked him, how do you cope? And he said, well, it's okay. I have known God. These other men haven't. He was a man who enjoyed the supremacy of the value of knowing God. He's supreme in his holiness. And hold that beside his supremacy in mercy and grace. And the more you see his holiness, the more you'll be amazed at his grace. He's supreme. He's supreme in his transcendence. He's glorious and exalted. Every time you think of some aspect of his character and you're amazed by it, say to yourself, he's more than this. He's supreme in his imminence. He's not simply a way off up there. He comes close. He's the Lord my shepherd. He's the one who came into this world in the incarnation. He's the one who came so close to take our sin on himself. This God is the one who lives with us and in us. He's supreme in his faithfulness. He's supreme in his knowledge. He's supreme in his power. And his justice, you could go on. Spurgeon again says this, All the attributes of God become wellsprings of joy to the thoughtful believer. The attributes of God become wellsprings of joy to the thoughtful believer. He says as well, Why? The contemplation of God to one who knows that this God is his God forever and ever is enough to make the eyes overflow with tears because of the deep, mysterious, unutterable bliss which fills the heart. Let's enjoy the supremacy of God's character. Work at it. As, you, as you're sitting praying this week, look at your thumb and finger and say to yourself, Supreme. Supreme in what? He's supreme in wisdom. How have I benefited from that? He's supreme in power. He's supreme in love. He's supreme in grace. Secondly, he's, he's supreme uh, as, i uh, sorry, enjoy God as sovereign. Enjoy God as supreme. Enjoy God as sovereign. What's the difference? And then his supremacy. Think of the, the exaltation of his character. In his sovereignty, we're thinking about his rule. His rule. What does joy in God's sovereignty guard us from? What, if we're going to enjoy God's sovereignty, it'll be like adding bricks to the wall of the castle, deepening the walls. But what will they guard us from, these bricks that we're adding? They'll guard us from worry and despair. As we enjoy the truth that God is sovereign. Satan will be lobbing his, 
his grenades and his cannonballs of worry and despair at us, but we will be building the walls thick because we will be enjoying God's sovereignty and every time we're enjoying it, we're adding another brick to the wall. It will shield us against worry. And, and where do we find this? Oh, all throughout Scripture is sovereignty. The Exodus, book of Nehemiah, Daniel, Esther. Go to the, the New Testament, Paul, um, the whole of the book of Acts. The cross itself, every, where you open your Bible, you see the sovereignty of God. Are you worried about the state of the world? I was reading this week in Isaiah 10, and uh, this great description of Assyria coming down, wielding an axe and smashing the nations in front of it, and then Assyria gets chopped down at the end by God. You know, this mighty nation, God uh, allows the wicked to rise, to serve his purpose, and then that's it. Assyria couldn't do any more, couldn't last any longer than God allowed it. I read that and thought, wow. You look at the nations around us. We think, what's going to happen to the world? Look at the state of the world. Look at who could end up as president of America. What are we, what's going to happen? What odds? Our God's sovereign. Maybe you despair over uh, the opposition that the gospel faces. Look at Nehemiah. They were planning and plotting against him at all times. And God thwarts Think of God's sovereignty in the life of uh, Mordecai and Esther and how the king couldn't get to sleep one night and how he just happened to ask for the books on a, of history because that would put him to sleep, but he didn't get to sleep. He was so engrossed in this man that had saved um, the, the king's life. He said, well, what are we going to do for this man? And God's sovereignty. Maybe you despair over the salvation of Loved ones, they're not interested, they're just, they're opposed to Christ. Think of Paul, think of Paul, and how opposed he was. And see him in the book of Acts, telling his story three times, God was sovereign. Maybe you despair over the spread of the gospel. Read the book of Acts and see the gospel spreading through ordinary people. Maybe you look and you get pulled down by bleak and hard circumstances that you're going through. You wonder, how can God turn this for good? Look at Joseph. Look at Joseph in Egypt. Maybe you wonder the state of our elected officials. Well, look at Acts 16 and Paul and Philippi and God using, um, God overturning the, the judgment of those officials. Uh, see on in the book of Acts where God uh, uses um, the judgment of another official uh, to safeguard Christianity for a number of years. Maybe you worry about tomorrow or about your life or about dreams and aspirations and plans and ambitions. Put yourself in the cave with David and you know how the story finishes. What would you say to David? You say, I know, look, God has this in control. Put yourself in the palace with Esther or in the prison with Joseph. What would you say to them? You say, it's okay, I know how this turns out. 
enjoy God as sovereign, not just in Scripture but in history. Our missionaries were turfed out of Ethiopia and the church was weak and fragile, but God's sovereign and the church grew. Enjoy the sovereignty of God in history and in Scripture. Uh, We thought last week about how history and biography can spur us on to daring faith. But when you read history and biography, it's not just a challenge, it's an encouragement because you see what God does. Here's this for an example from um, uh, John Flavel. Um, This is the... Christians were besieged in a place in France called Béziers, uh, and they're delivered by a drunken drummer, who going to his quarters at midnight, he was so blind drunk, he didn't know what time it was, and he decided to beat the alarm. Just as the town uh, was being attacked, the enemies were sneaking in in the darkness, about to launch an attack, and this rip-roaring blind drunk, Drummer starts battering the drums, you know, because he's just too full. And the town wakens up, and they're saved. They repel the attack. There's a sovereign God. A spider, he recounts, uh, weaving her web over the mouth of an oven, hid a servant of Christ from his enemies. Uh, This man had taken his his refuge in in an oven, in a big oven in a bakery, and they had come in looking for him. And a spider's web was across the opening, and thought, well, there's nobody in there. God's sovereignty. I just read things and I think, wow, what a God we have. And it puts a smile on your face. Uh, it says, by a hen he shall sustain another Christian who was hiding many days at the same time because she came and laid her egg every day where he had hidden himself from the people hunting him. When you have a God who's so sovereign he can, he can orchestrate where hens lay eggs. That just puts a smile and joy. God's sovereignty. And as we do that, that enjoyment of who God is and what he does will strengthen us. It will be a citadel to us when our own troubles uh, strike. Enjoy God's sovereignty. Enjoy God as sovereign. Secondly, or thirdly rather, enjoy God as saviour. Enjoy God as saviour. That's the focus of the Feast of Tabernacles. God as saviour. And the whole of the Exodus is an illustration of our salvation brought out of slavery, brought to the promised land, the Passover lamb, the lamb that's slain in our place. And they were to look back at it and they were to enjoy God's saving of them. And when we enjoy God as our Savior, it strengthens us against doubt that we're forgiven against temptation and against fear of death. It's a citadel against those things. And how do we do that? Well, we thought a couple of weeks ago about Jesus as Savior, and we thought about the past, present, and future tenses. He saved us from the penalty of our sin. Think on that. It seems a strange thing to to think about enjoying the fact that He paid for all our sin. But look on it with fondness. Stop and think about it. Don't just take it for granted. He was crushed. He was pierced for my transgressions. The punishment 
that brought us peace was on him. He bore our sins in his body to the tree. Think on it and think on it with tender enjoyment. It's been done. Think on how he is saving you from the power of sin. He is saving you from the power of sin. That's a fact. He is doing it. And that strengthens us against Satan's attack with temptation. Satan camps outside the castle of salvation and lobs temptation at us. And we're doing all we can to resist it. But one of the ways to resist is to strengthen the walls of the castle of our souls by building up the bricks of enjoying the fact that the Holy Spirit's living in us to help us to grow in godliness and there's no temptation has seized us except what is common and God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear but will provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. We remember it. We enjoy that. We enjoy that we are saved to obey. That it brings joy to Jesus as we obey him. Psalm 37. He, the Lord, delights in the way of the godly man or woman. He enjoys us triumphing over sin. I had a quote the other day from Mike Reeves that I, that I read out in Milford when I was reviewing a book. Um, if I can find it. Here it is. Even as we are bruised now. That's what temptation does to us. Even as we are bruised now, with our great firstborn brother, we do some bruising. Every time you rejoice in Christ, every time you resist sin, every time you proclaim him and show his love, you press home the victory of Christ. You stamp on the serpent's head. That's what we're doing. That should bring us joy. Every time you resist You're stamping on the serpent's head. And our Savior is delighted. Because that's what he died for. To rescue us from the power of sin. And here it is happening. And he's saying, look, what I died for is happening in the life of this person. That should strengthen us. Enjoy. You are being saved from the power of sin. It'll be a battle, but that's one of the, the factors. And enjoy that we will be saved from the presence of sin. Enjoy God as your Savior. The day is coming when sin will be no more. Wait with it, for it with patience and anticipation and hope. We will be saved. Enjoy God as Savior, as supreme in His character, as sovereign, as Savior. And then fourthly, enjoy God as supplier. Enjoy God as supplier. Again, the Exodus gave them much evidence of this. The water from the rock, the water made sweet at Mara, the uh, manna from heaven, the quail, the shoes that didn't wear out for 40 years, the clothes that didn't go done for 40 years. There's God's miraculous provision and there's his ordinary provision. You know, in a sense, the, the quail were something ordinary. You know, they were birds that were blown uh, on this, this uh, wind that, that came in from the sea and blew them that direction. And there they were. There was something miraculous, but there was something ordinary. But the shoes that didn't go done, the water from a rock, miraculous. And they were to think back over it and they were to enjoy God's 
provision? Do you enjoy God's acts of providence? If we do, if we're in the habit of daily marking God's provision for us, it'll guard us from fear and worry, and it'll guard us from impatience. Um, let me give you one more quote from John Flavel. It's got a lovely section just at the end of it. He says, You read that the Lord waits to be gracious to you, Isaiah 30. Why does he wait? Why? It is nothing else but the time of his preparation of mercies for you and for your hearts. He's preparing the mercies for you so that you may have it with the greatest advantage. Why does he wait to be gracious? Because he's getting everything ready so that at the right time you will enjoy this to your greatest advantage and comfort. Then here's his illustration. The foolish child would pluck the apple while it is green, but when it is ripe, it drops off of its own accord and is much more pleasant and wholesome. I know that God will provide. We'll be patient, waiting for him to provide at the right time. Flavel urges us to, to make a record of how God provides. Celebrate those little provisions in everyday life. The phone call that comes at just the right time before you were about to start into something and that changes the whole course of action. Has that happened to you? The, the sunny day that arrives for a wedding whenever we've been having hail and snow and all the rest of it. Has that happened to anyone here? Colin, Colin was telling me about a, a neighbour who took on to, to fix a hole in Colin's fence. There's God's providence. As Colin was going out uh, for a meal with his wife and somebody's busy fixing a hole in his fence. Oh, a kind neighbour, but a kingly father in heaven providing Remember those things. Those are marks of our Father's care. I think of the providence that caused me to say no to the call from Kells Water. Kept me in Donegal, and that's been wonderful for all sorts of reasons, but one of the, the offshoots of that was I ended up when my eyesight started to fall apart having one of the top surgeons in Europe. So that even when my eye specialist now looks at my eye, she says, oh, what skill that man has. How amazing his hands. She just marvels. She, you think she was looking at the Mona Lisa or something. It's just my eye. But, but God's providence. I could have been having somebody of lesser reputation or skill perhaps somewhere else. But in God's providence, he did that. Think of how the, the gospel came into your life. Think of the family perhaps you were born into the experiences you've had, mark and enjoy, being in the habit of noting them, maybe literally in a notebook, maybe just in your prayers, but do that and they will become a citadel. You'll be like building up the fortress walls brick by brick and as you look and expect confidently that God will provide when you're under siege, every brick, as it were, that you're looking out over, will have engraved on the inside. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You've enjoyed how God provides day after day, week after week. You've put the bricks in place 
And then when the siege comes, all those bricks say to you, God will provide. God will provide. The joy of God, the supplier, will be your strength, your citadel. Enjoy God as supreme. Enjoy God as sovereign. Enjoy God as saviour. Enjoy God as supplier. And you will find strength coursing through your faith that enlivens it, that puts a smile on your face too. And you will find uh, that you can trust this God no matter what circumstances he brings your way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have so much to be filled with joy for. Um, Forgive us for losing sight and seeing the bigness of the temptations, the uncertainty of the future, the, the greatness of our sin and guilt. Forgive us for seeing those things and not seeing the wonder of Christ's salvation, the sovereignty and love of our Father in heaven who has everything orchestrated for the good of his people and who provides all things that we need. Lord, help us to see. Help us to enjoy. Help us to mark with gladness what you have done for your people. Father, help us, we pray, so that we will know that the joy of the Lord is our citadel, our fortress, our strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.